welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Dr. Moira Summers. Dr. Summers is a renowned psychologist that also spends a lot of time advising the financial services community surrounding the concepts of advice and better delivering and preparing people to take it. And I brought her on the podcast specifically today to talk about the challenges of taking advice from others and how to best be honest with yourself in order to take advice. And with that, here's my interview with Dr. Moira Summers. Hello, Moira. Hello. Thank you for taking the time today. I am so looking forward to talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, the, the feeling is mutual. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. So uh, Dr. Moira Summers, please tell us about who you are and what it is you do. I am a psychologist and professor at the Max Rady School of Medicine at the University of Manitoba, and I am a consultant to the financial services professions. I am originally an Ontarian. I grew up in the Georgian Bay area and moved out to Winnipeg, Manitoba, because, you know, who wouldn't? And I've been here for many years now with my husband and family. Excellent. So uh, I'm going to leave the joke about moving, Manito- moving to Winnipeg uh, alone. I have friends there who don't want to ostracize. So you basically, let's, let's dive here. So you are a psychologist. So talk about your specific yeah. field of practice. And let's then I want to understand how you came to start advising people in the financial services industry. Sure. My area of interest has long been what makes it hard for us to follow sound advice. My doctoral dissertation was on procrastination. And so that was a deep dive into why it is that we often can't even meet our own deadlines, let alone other people's deadlines for us. And then as I moved into the healthcare setting, whether we were talking about preventative advice or corrective advice for people who already had problems, you know, people really struggle to do the things that are going to safeguard their lives and create great outcomes for themselves, even when they're highly motivated to do so. And so that's always struck me as one of the most interesting aspects of working with human beings is how do we deliver advice more effectively when we're the advice giver? And how do we open up our minds and our hearts to receive advice? And how do we structure our lives so that we can actually act on it? Excellent. So I have the obvious joke of how long did you procrastinate in finishing your doctoral thesis? (laughs) You can do better than that, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) I finished it in record time. It was high. Sure you did. Sure, sure you did, because because everyone I know who's ever done a doctoral thesis has ever said it, they finished it on time. Okay. <laughs> I'll forget that I've taught in academia as well. I am aware how this works. So I, I will find a better joke at some point throughout this. So, I mean, clearly, I think this is something that frankly should resonate with everyone who's listening, because you know, it's the old fat smoker paradigm. We all know what we have to do to be healthy, right? We all know we have to eat right. We have to work out. We shouldn't, you know, partake in too much alcohol, tobacco, whatever it is. Yet, and if that happened, you know, the actual tables would look a lot more positive than they do. But this is a fundamental issue or concern of the human condition. So before we dive into that, 
there's an obvious reason why you're working within the financial services industry. Tell me how that consulting got started. It got started because an organization in the U.S., uh, a training institute there, the Sudden Money Institute, mm-hmm. expressed interest in my bringing the, the world of non-adherence research into the financial domain. So until that time, I'd been working pretty much exclusively within healthcare and health-related fields. But they thought there was going to be some applicability to the financial domain. And indeed there was. One of the main reasons for that is that the best medical advice is like the best financial advice in that it's preventative. Mm. The best advice that you will act on is the stuff that gets you into trouble that you didn't even know you could have been courting had you not been there. But unfortunately, the hardest kind of advice to take is also the preventative advice. And so (laughs) it's the best advice to receive and act on, and it's the hardest advice to receive and act on. And so that's how I got started. Very quickly, I ended up um, this was at a time when the NFL players were in lockout. Do you remember that? That was Sunday. it was a sad day for me. Yes, <laughs> was it? I had no. Yeah, totally sad. <laughs> Nothing to watch on Sundays. Yeah, and uh, it was a sad day for a lot of the players too. <laughs> so I was asked to come speak about speak at the NFL Players Association about the whole phenomenon of financial stress and the perils mm. of pre-spending money that you didn't actually have yet and how to hold the boundaries firm against people who didn't have your best interests at heart or against expectations of other people, even people who loved you, but who nevertheless, whose expectations could be quite burdensome or problematic. And so those couple of initial events just led to lots of interest, is what I would say, Jason, from the financial community in various parts, you know, both working with advisors who didn't know often how to work with clients in various states of distress or excitability, whether it was a sudden money event, whether it was something like a a personal loss, a divorce or a death or business challenges. And so advisors asked me to, to work with the firms so that advisors could get better. Regulatory bodies asked me to consult with them around what do advisors need to know to be more effective and stay on the side of the angels in terms of working with people. And then those same advisors asked me if I would speak or work with many of the families that they work with. So the business, in particular, business families who Mm -hmm. were working with challenges of succession planning and how to talk to their kids about money, how to deal with some of the partnership conflicts. So I tell you, it's been a workout from (laughs) both the business end of things as well as the psychological expertise end of things. Because when money gets involved, emotions get involved and values get involved. Mm -hmm. And it's not just... that it stops being a technical issue long before advisors or accountants or lawyers ever wish that, that it would have been. You cannot swing a cat in this realm without hitting on deeply held values or easily triggered emotions. It's just the water we swim in, it seems. Agreed. I mean, we often ask the question early on about when I see people struggling around the concept of controlling their spending, a lot of times the question around what was money like as a child and the family comes in because it's a try, I'm always trying to understand where they come from. And, and I mean, that's not to say, I mean, you are going to be infinitely better at this than I am. And I often say that quite honestly, like one of the biggest deficiencies in the training for financial planners is the lack of attention towards understanding the psychological aspects mm-hmm. of what happens with money. And like, we're not going to become therapists and counselors ourselves, but frankly, a generalist or a generalized knowledge of how people 
deal with these issues and how they deal with things in crisis, how they deal with crises. These are all things like we're, if you're there for more than just the money aspect of their lives, these are issues you have to deal with. And a, a couple, you know, for those of you who, uh, who have not seen the ESPN 30 for 30 called broke, I highly suggest it. It's all about athletes going broke, highly suggested because it is tragic and also amusing, but nevertheless, when you start talking about athletes losing money, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Mm. So before we, uh, we so I actually, just to introduce the, the concept, I'd actually brought you on under the topic of being psychologically and emotionally ready to take advice and, and knowing how to absorb that. But I just want to explore a couple of the things that you said before we get there, because a lot of what you said was quite honestly, I think we just talk at random, and this would make for one of the most interesting conversations I'm going to have. But I want to go back to your concept of adherence research, which I love the term, or non-adherence research. I, I love that term. It sounds so beautifully technical. Why is it so hard for us to take preventative action, right? Is it just because we can't, is the payoff is such a distant, distant concept to us? Like, why is it that we are so bad at doing the right thing for us in the future today? As you would expect when you ask an academic this question, uh, the the first answer is uh, it's complicated and it depends. <laughs> um, where I, as advice givers, we always tend to look to the clients and say, frankly, what the hell is wrong with them? That's. <laughs> no, I had this conversation the other day, okay, where someone said that I'm like, well, they're not listening because you're not getting through to them. So start reframing the problem. <laughs> there you go. There yeah. you go. But you know, it, because we do have specialized technical training that allows us to see quite clearly a pathway, it's hard for us to understand why other people wouldn't just see it that way also. And it is the tendency of advice givers to default to client blaming and to get caught up in judgment. Mm -hmm. Whereas in fact, Jason, the research shows that there isn't such a thing as a globally person. I mean, mm -hmm. Maybe some toddlers would fall into that category, but you haven't met my daughter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, most of us will stop at stop signs. Most of us obey the laws, but we do cherry pick which kinds of directives we're going to follow, mm -hmm. and those some of that will be predictable. You know, like we're going to be happier to avoid advice that's painful, that's complicated. It's ongoing, even within the field of medicine. It's really easy to swallow an antibiotic when we have a raging tooth abscess and there's pain to remind us to do it. But as soon as it settles down, you know, we often find that uh, we look at that bottle four weeks later and find that there are, oh, there's five or six pills still in there because once, and it wasn't intentional, was it? It's just that once the pain wasn't there to remind us, it literally was out of mind. And so Part of the problem with preventative advice is that we don't have pain motivating us. And sometimes if the advice giver doesn't do an adequate job, we also don't have insight motivating us. And so we will default to the things that are closer in terms of time to where we are now. And we'll do the easy thing and we'll do the pleasurable thing. And we'll do the thing that is the default. And that's one of the challenges for all of us is how much can we automate this stuff? Because once we check a box, man, we seem to have an aversion to unchecking a box or to changing mm -hmm. that check mark. You know, there's a reason why 97% of Canadians pay their mortgages on time every month. And that's because the banks really understand defaults. They do not leave it to our memory to get that mortgage payment out of us. Mm -hmm. It comes out the first day of, of the paycheck and it comes out automatically and nobody has to remember to do that transfer. They understand that. 
You contrast that, but the same group of people, same group of Canadians with our dismal savings rates. 97% of us pay our mortgage on time. Do the rate of people who actually contribute to long-term and short-term savings and emergency savings is, is much lower than that. And it's because often we rely on having enough money left over that isn't accounted for and we'll get to it at the end of the month or we'll get to it sometime. Same thing with writing a will. We all understand that it needs to be done, but the majority of us haven't done it or haven't kept it updated. If there were things that were nudging us, that were capturing pre-commitments so that when our ship came in a little bit more, when we got that raise, if we'd already pre-committed to that Save more tomorrow? Yep. Yep. If we have, if for example, when a young person applied for a credit card, if they had to watch a couple of videos, a couple of minutes of videos on how you can get yourself in trouble with credit and what is the wise use of credit and just pass this little test before we give you the credit card, completely different outcomes happen. But we learn about stuff in isolation, in silos, at times when it's not necessarily convenient or meaningful to implement it. And so we don't implement it. So that's, and, that's just a smattering of some of the reasons why we don't follow advice. It's interesting because so much of it is, is process design, right? Like, you know, you yes. mentioned, you know, the banks being very effective at collecting mortgages because, hey, they know, we, know, we know it's going to hit our account at the end of the month. The same concept to pay yourself first, right? And save more tomorrow. We've, these are things I've talked about in, on, the, on the podcast before are all violently, highly effective. The credit card one, I often feel like if, if you went to use your credit card and it's in your phone, smartphone asked for an authentication and was like, are you sure you want to do this? You only have this much money left in your bank account. This was going to take you this long to pay it off. Here's the amount of interest. And it was like five checkpoints that you had to get through before you could actually say yes to the transaction. I don't think you'd spend as much on credit cards, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of what is designed to be bad for us is instantaneous gratification. Mm -hmm. And and this, the friction to getting there often tends to be low, right? Like it takes nothing for me to swipe my card, right? Like it's literally nothing. Whereas in that, I think in the studies that show that if you use cash, you actually spend less because visualized constraints, you have to manually account for it. Lots of things I'm sure you could easily talk to me, teach me lessons about as opposed to well, me talking about. <laughs> well, some of those things that are bypassed with the automaticity that marketers have figured out and casinos have figured out, what we know is that they actually change how our brain processes the information. So when we pay with cash, for, uh, sorry, when we pay with credit card for something that we, uh, some desired item, the pleasure centers of our brain light up, the anticipation centers of our brain light up. We're just thinking about good things. When we pay with cash, those same brain centers light, will light up on neuroimaging, but so will a center associated with pain and one associated with disgust. Paying with credit literally removes the pain of paying at the neuropsychological level. And I am most hopeful in the field of finance and how we run our businesses. I am most hopeful about any intervention that sets up different kinds of defaults, that provides just-in-time learning, that allows people to bypass the things that activate short-term emotion and that re-engage the things that activate long-term emotion that is meaningful. So let's actually now curtail into the actual reason I brought you to the podcast, even though that was, again, a conversation I could have continued having for God knows how long. And that comes down to the concept of, of psychologically being, I think, let's, let's break this down to a couple of things. Recognizing that you need to take advice. I think most of us recognize we need to get a, take advice, but then 
recognize being being psychologically ready to take it and act on it. So basically, in terms of I know everyone's different, best practices or what one's mindset should be in. What are the commonalities that will lead to success versus what's going to hold us back from from being able to do that? It is hard to speak in generalities about this, but let me give it a try. Usually when we start a business or buy a business, there's a fair amount of confidence and hopefulness that goes into that. This notion that I could do this better than I've seen it done, or I could do this in a way that would support the kind of life that I want to have. I don't want to put it all on the altar of somebody else. I want to make this be for me or my family, or I want to do this technical thing that I do as an engineer or a software designer. I want to do it my way. I want to run my kind of marketing firm, my kind of pie making shop, whatever it is. And so there's, you have to have a fair amount of moxie to do that well, or a fair amount of inspiration. <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> and so you used to kind of putting your head down and plowing through and a certain kind of imperviousness to really depressing business statistics about how many are out of work within the, the first five years. That's required. There mm -hmm. almost has to be an anti-fragility of entrepreneurs to make it, right? That it's not only that we're going to get better in spite of setbacks, it's that the setbacks themselves will fuel us and make them stronger. That's what it is to be anti-fragile. And I think a lot of business owners have some of that characteristic. But then by definition, it sets us up to be a little bit deaf to the cautionary tales sometimes. And so for me, one of the, the big differences that I see that separates folks in this regard is, are you conf is this confidence I'm seeing or is this hubris? Are you actually looking at your data or are you being avoidant? Is this all bravado or is this based in data that we could, that we could all look at and agree on? So part of it is how reality-based are you? How willing are you to look at the metrics of your own business? So if we're talking about pundits, everybody could have different predictions, right? So, so it's one thing to ignore industry leaders or, or people who claim that they know the future, but it's another thing altogether to ignore your own metrics and your own data. So that I think to be successful in business, I'm, I'm working with a, a women's organization right now, to be successful in business means that you, you, have to, you have to look at that. And there's another interesting finding, which is that people who have three or four different types of community support tend to do best. We do best when we have people who can connect us with other people. We do well when we have mentors, people who've gone this road before us and can, can help us, can put us on their shoulders uh, so that we don't, we don't have to slog through the same mud that they did. We do better when we have people who may not know anything at all about the business, but who just encourage us, who believe in us as people. And then it, it also helps, funnily enough, to have a few people who are kind of <laughs> the negative Nellies who say, you're going to have to prove it to me because I don't know that you got it. You don't mm -hmm. need a whole lot of those. In fact, a few go a long way. So to think about what kind of advice is it that you're needing and what kind of emotional support or professional support are you needing along the way? That, that's, you know, that'll vary from time to time. Sometimes you need to know how to do something. Sometimes you need to know when. Sometimes you need somebody to tell you, as a LinkedIn article I just wrote today, you've been shot, now fall down, damn it. It is time to rest and restore. Mm -hmm. That did an excellent job. And it's amazing. I mean, 
how much of that resonated with me personally from both my own experience and also from the experience of just mentoring a lot of other people in this space and clients, right? Like the, the combination of clients and other advisors. So I always say the same thing. You have to be a never ending optimist to basically start a business, right? As you said, the failure rates, and I always point to the episode of Seinfeld with the spot of death restaurant where, you know, it's turned over, you know, the last, the last eight guys who basically ran a restaurant here, they didn't know what they were doing. But me, me, I'm going to make it work on this one location. Like I always said to myself, like, oh my goodness, like if five other restaurants failed, it's probably not just the restaurants. It's probably something to do with the location too, right? <laughs> so you, you have that. And then I always say that the other problem, when it comes to entrepreneurship, it's, it's the most bipolar thing you could ever subject yourself to because things go well, you're on top of the world, this is going to work. And then inevitably you have the periods, the dark periods where you know money's tight, where you're dealing with staffing issues you never thought you would deal with, creditor concerns, whatever it is. And you worry about losing your mortgage, you're losing your home, right? Like you just, you, you worry about that sort of stuff. And I think one of the reasons why I, I work so heavily with entrepreneurs is because I feel that I've felt that, like, I know what it's like to go through that, but it's interesting when people haven't. And I think to the young advisors I've mentored where they've had an opportunity to go independent or, or to basically start off an independent shop by practice, whatever it is. And to me, it's like, yes, this is the opportunity you do this. And the look of panic on their faces at the idea of it. And it's, I have to refresh my memory that this is not, this is not an entrepreneur. This is a person who's not used to this world. So it's such, it's such a challenge, but I also thinking want of to, the book sorry. as you, as you talk there, I'm thinking of the book, the e-myth. Well, you referenced the pie shop. So I knew you were going to go. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, it talks about the various hats that you have to wear in order to succeed in business. Yeah. And most of us start out wearing a, a kind of technical expert hat, right? I'm yeah. going to do this business my way. Then we learn about how we need to fill out T4 slips and all those beautiful things about business management. And those two things ultimately can be outsourced. They don't actually need you in the long run. But the piece that can't be outsourced is that vision piece, right? Mm -hmm. What do you want for your life from this business? And that requires you to be fully present. And I think that's one of the, the most helpful categories of counsel or of coaching that people can, sub, can bring into their business periodically, you know, every, every few years or to go on a retreat with yourself and, and some key people to say, what's next? What do I want now? You can't outsource that. Life will just have its way with you and your business if you will not actively pick up the GPS unit and type in where it is you want to be going in the next little while. Yeah, and so often entrepreneurs end up, it's not the business enabling their life, it's the life sac being sacrificed for yeah. their business, yeah. right? And I can see how that would be incredibly motivated, a incredible factor for helping people move past the, I've got to do it all. Like I've, I've said this before in, in previous podcasts, you know, they're the hubris that does come into play where I need to do everything because I do it the way I like it and that's it. And, and to not think that there's somebody else who could either, who could basically do it better than you or advise you on how to do it better, more efficient. It's just hubris. Like it, it really is. And mm -hmm. we need to open ourselves up to it. And, and, and I think what you said there, prioritizing the life outcome ahead of the business outcome the only way we're going to get to the prioritization of the life outcome is if we change the business behavior, which we're only going to change if we take in advice from others in the first place, right? Because we, we, if we, if we didn't, we wouldn't have an imbalance in the first place if we were doing it right. <laughs> so I can see how that would be powerful. Do you think so, Jason? I, I don't know. My sense is that there are definitely periods of mandatory imbalance or inevitable imbalance. Yeah. 
in a business life. Like when you start up, you're just, you're gung ho and thank God you are. Cause that's what you need. I don't know that you can start out perfectly balanced. I don't think you can, but I also think that depending on what life stage you're in, your life is more conducive to not being balanced, right? A lot of businesses get started when people are unmarried, when people are early on in life, yeah. right? If you yeah. need to work 60 hours a week, no big deal, right? Like it's just, you're not going out and hanging out with your friends as much, but eventually that, that price is paid. But as you said, the entire, when they have that crisis moment, maybe that's the catalyst or maybe it's not. And as you know, the previous interview with Dave Sinclair, he had his crisis moment. It came after retirement. Maybe if he had taken the advice or been better at, and he talks about this himself, if he had been better at listening to others around him on other aspects of his life, he wouldn't have had that crisis mm. to sell the business and yeah. then hit the wall after he hit the wall, uh, he did that. So I'm get, what I'm getting from you is there's no panacea. <laughs> so there, there's no pill to this, right? Well, I think that if there is a panacea, it's staying grounded and being willing to look at your metrics and yeah. understanding the basic principle that we get further with help than on our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are two guiding principles. It's funny. I love that you went to the metrics, uh, not just because I'm a math junkie, but also because when other, you know, and advisors and business owners start talking about like professionalizing or moving to the next level. My first response is almost always like, okay, how often are you looking at your financials? And the response is eight out of 10 times, like when my accountant hands them to me, right? Like if you're, you get to a certain scale of business, like that's not the answer. But if you're a professional or a solo practitioner, or yet maybe you have one employee or you're an advisor, the answer is almost always when the accountant handles, hands them to me. I and mean, they look at me kind of coyly saying, is that okay? I'm like, do you think Tim Cook looks at them once a year? The reality is, is that it's not a burden. It's an asset. And if you can use that information, it's only going to inform every aspect of your business. And I think the being objective about the numbers, it's going to point to the weaknesses where we know, where we suddenly, I'll share a personal story. So a part of my practice got transitioned to another advisor and he was so just focused on retaining the clients and trying to, first he was focused on retaining the clients, then he was worried about making the payments. And he had this large looming payment that was coming that he had basically almost panicked himself about. And at the end of the day, when we actually did the reconciliation, enough clients had left that, that most of that payment was not necessary anymore. And he had no idea because he'd been paying no attention to the numbers. He'd just been so busy trying to drive revenue. And you know, I said to him, think about the level of anxiety that you caused yourself for not objectively identifying where the problems were in the business, you could have, instead of worrying about making this payment that never had to be made, you could have focused on just improving like on areas that would have actually bettered your business in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, a, hopefully that was a wake up moment for him that he realized that, okay, I completely looked at this backwards, but you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because you pointed out there are different kinds of metrics. Yeah. And he just didn't know which metrics were the most important. And I want to, I want to say that there are because you and the business are inseparable not much of the time as a business owner. There are relational metrics and there are health metrics. And often we don't care to ask those questions. You know, we don't, yeah. we don't say to our spouse, how are we doing? Yeah. We don't ask our kids, how could I be a better mom? Don't ask, we don't go for the checkup. We don't step on the scale or we don't check the blood pressure. We actively avoid some of, some of those metrics too. It's not just the financial ones. We don't put it through the filter of, am I having fun yet? 
still. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh boy. Because once you start, once positivity starts eroding, or there's just so much dreck in your day that you've got to you've got to plow through, that the positivity ratio starts to shift in in favor of of more negative than positive, you know that you're on a downward spiral and this business is not going to do well and you are not going to do well. So yeah. there are there are different kinds of metrics that we need to look forward to. That the article that I or that we need to de- to do the examination of. The article that I posted today on LinkedIn was about this very real problem, which is that as we grow depleted, right, neurons in our brain start slowing down and this very organ that's responsible for insight becomes compromised, gets worn out. And so you just kind of keep slogging on because that's what you've been doing until you can't slog anymore. So if we could learn how to be a little bit more proactive in stopping and asking the right questions and talking to the right people, I think we're going to find ourselves faring better. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, several things there reminded me of various other guests or other things I've done in my life. Dr. Ryan Knipping, who runs a place called the Deerfields Clinic, he used to, he's a, it's a private clinic. And he started that clinic because he said, the other clinics I worked at, it was executives would come in once a year and you just chart this downward progression, right? It's like, oh you, you'd be like, hey, do this and whatever. And then they come back the next year and it was worse. And he's like, no. So there's, there's programs for, for intervention and for constantly staying on top of, you know, it's talking to them at least every three months to, to actually measure the metrics. And also the, to- the point about the neurons not firing the same way because you're, you've reached a point of, of, of a point of just, you pushed yourself too far. One of the things that Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach talks about is flipping the paradigm on that. We burn ourselves out to go on vacation and then we come back and we're highly productive and then we burn ourselves out again and then we need a vacation. And his entire stance says, no, no, no. Take the vacation to allow you to work highly productively and before you burn out, take the next vacation because the time off will be made up by the, by the productive. And as for your, your feedback one, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this one. If you ever listen to Tim Ferriss, uh, he talks openly sometimes about a friend he has who's, uh, I don't know what he is, but I think he's a highly successful entrepreneur is what it sounds like. But he has his wife give him a scorecard once a month and she grades him on various criteria. And those criteria are, I think if I remember correctly, provider, partner, lover, father, and I can't remember the last one, it was like five. And the deal is he's allowed to have, his, his average score has to be a letter grade, I think of like at least B, and there can, no score can be below like a, a D or something like that, whatever it was. And that is his, you know, people, it's funny, people kind of laugh at that, but I look at that and I've actually, at one point I told my wife that I'm like, okay, do me a favor, give me the exact, like, so from time to time, I've actually asked her to do the same thing. And I think it's, it's important because how many relationships get to the point of no return where it's just like, maybe if you could have inter- intercepted it at the C before it got to a D and then an mm-hmm. F, you could have done something, but Knowing where, yeah, because exactly, and it's like, yeah, and it's like, what is this all for in the end if it's not going to make our personal lives more like better, right? Like Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, at some point, whether it be horizontally or vertically, we're going to retire, (laughs) and and I would I would prefer for it not to lead to the horizontal situation, and I would prefer that when I do retire vertically, that essentially I have something in meaning in my life Mm -hmm. uh, beyond what was the business. So it's. Again, I feel like I could talk to you all day about how to get around these things. So, I mean, I, I love what you have to say about the objectivity of this all. About, I think, if anything, you said it's. it's a, I can sum up the different kind of aspects of what you talked about by face the truth. Face the truth. We're not good at facing the truth. You need feedback, whether that be quantifiable numbers or assessment, and then you can intervene because that's going to point to the problems. Or you can you can continue to bury your head in the sand. 
that's the case. And and one of the other other last interesting stories before I let you before I ask another question. Remember, one client came in saying, you know, I decided this financial plan. I'm glad we're doing it. And my friend asked me, why in God's name would you want to do that? Why do you want to know how bad it is? And I thought to myself, like, wow, that person first off assumes your situation is bad, but like, how bad is their concept of what their personal situation is? And to the point where they won't allow someone to even assess if it's a bad situation. Like the level of fear of their own lives they must be living in is just, I, I can't imagine what the impact of that is. Mm, yeah, that's yeah. shocking. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's shocking, but I'm sure that if some people were more frank about why they haven't done financial planning when, when approached about it, I'm mm-hmm. sure that that's probably not far off is I don't necessarily want to know just how bad it is, unfortunately. So before we wrap up, um, I, I, first of all, not only want to thank you, um, are there any kind of final thoughts around how people such as advisors can help business owners? Because especially, I mean, everybody faces these challenges in life, but I feel like with the business owners, it's at another level. We're responsible for so much more than just our job. We're responsible for typically the people we employ, the demands on on that life are typically a lot harder than the average employee, I will say. And I will live and die by that because I've seen it. <laughs> but besides the objectivity, like what are the first kind of like fundamental steps that people can take to, to enable this conversation to happen? The first is to rein yourself in as an advisor. Mm-hmm. Often we are so concerned about the for the people that we're advising or we're so excited about their the their prospects or we are so full of ourselves and confident about our own state of our own knowledge and wisdom and that we we just pour it out on them like a fire hose Mm. and we don't truly stop and listen for what it is they're asking for nor do we pay any attention to what to the signs that they're giving us around readiness, willingness, ability. Every one of us has competing demands on our time, energy, and money. And to be a good advisor means that you first and foremost, the first thing you do is find out what does this person want from me? What kind of advice are they looking for? It may not even be the thing that I think is most needed, but let me tell you, you get way more uptake in the long run if you start with what they've got the juice for what they've got the mojo for. And implementation begets implementation. People look to advisors. They look to experts for advice for many, many different reasons. And one of them is in order to get into action because they've become discouraged or they've become stuck. Mm. And if you can help them build, get out of park and start moving immediately, that's great. Doesn't matter if it's not the absolute perfect thing. If that's what they've got the juice for, let's go with it. The other thing that, uh, that advisors need to do is, is to take a page from the book of the medical school research, which is always make a point of tapping into, like figuring out what is motivating a person to engage in this, if they actually have agreed that this is what they want to act on. What is pow- fueling them through this? And is it sufficiently deep? And lastly, have you worked with them to identify what's going to get in the way? Because if, if both of you are whistling Dixie around the fact that there's somebody in their life that's going to be really peeved at them if they do what you say, who has the most contact with them? Who's, who's going to win the day? It's probably not going to be you. The standards for financial professionals in Canada and the US and even international standards now for CFP professionals are that the advisor is responsible for implementing. 
implementation is part of the advisor's job. It's, it's not just a hit and run. You know, here I've delivered my commandments to you like the Lord Almighty on, on Mount Sinai and you just scurry off and do what it says, please. No, it says we have to be there in the trenches and we have to t- co-determine with them whose job is it to do this part and this part and this part. And how can I help this client who may have said, I've never been able to do this thing that you've asked me to do. I know I need to do it well. There's, the spirit is willing here, but I've never been able to do that. Then it's not sufficient for you to say, oh, okay, I guess we yeah. can ignore that, right? A great advisor will say, let's start, let's start getting really granular here. Where is it that that breaks down? Does that break down because you don't trust lawyers? Does that break down because you don't know a lawyer? Does that break down because you break out into a cold sweat every time you think about dying? Or does that break down because you and your wife are, or you and your your husband are in conflict around who should be the guardian for your children? Where exactly does it break down? Mm -hmm. And so when you do factor analyses on why people don't follow advice, there are five domains that, that fall out pretty much every time. But it turns out that mistakes made by the advisor, Jason, account for more of the variance and non-adherence than what clients do. Like That's mm. shocking to me that I'm that responsible for more of things not happening than the client themselves. <laughs> oh, shoot. That just so gets in the way of my blaming. Well, that's funny because that supports my theory about my statement previously about like, <laughs> no, yeah, they're not listening to you because you're not getting through to them. Right. So that is, wow. I would love to see the research on that because I, it would not overly surprise me. It really would not overly surprise me. But so one of the, as much as that kind of makes my cheeks burn the, the, the first, you know, every time I come in, up on an article that says, yeah, it's all about you, Moira. <laughs> it also is hopeful in the end, right? Because that is something that I have a profound degree of influence over. I can ask somebody in a meeting, is there anything that I said today that you didn't really get? I can ask somebody, could you tell me in your own words what we, what we agreed would be the next best step and why? I can ask somebody, is there anything I said today that upset? Anything that I've said that just is not going to work for your life or business right now? I can create the kind of psychologically safe advising space so that people can surface that and know that it really matters, that it's welcome and that it's important that that stuff come in. And then they can watch me pivot instead of me insisting that they get squished into this hole that I want them to be in. And it's, I mean, I often, you know, again, I'm going to relate to personal experience on this and, you know, just watching people's body language and, and the information I get from that sometimes and having those moments where it's like, okay, I clearly said something to you that actually made you back up. Like, where did I make you? Like, what's the concern? Was it me? Was it, was it just a topic? And you know, the thing is, I always find with that is, is that the sense of appreciation for the fact that you're willing to course correct in front of them. After you kind of tried to pair back that, if you can actually start to find the topic or, or the reason for that reaction, mm-hmm. there's like a, I'm really glad you stopped there. I'm really like, you know, everybody wants to feel heard and respected. And too often, as I say in this industry, people talk past their clients. I am a genius. Listen to me. I am like, you know, you're, you're just the person sitting there and I'm just like the fire hose, just spewing stuff and you just need to drink it in. And I don't think that works for any of us, quite honestly. <laughs> so 
Dr. Morris Summers, I sincerely thank you for this. Um, again, sometimes these podcasts, an hour is not enough, <laughs> but uh, uh, this is definitely one of them. Before we go, where can people find you to learn more about your work and, um, and follow your continued teachings? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, Moira, uh, Dr. Moira Summers. My website is moneymindandmeaning.com. And I have just put together an online course for advisors in particular about how to deliver advice more effectively. And you can find more about that at moneymindedmeaning.com or at arlan, A-R-L-A-N, academy.com. I know what I'm signing up for very shortly. All right. (laughs) Thank you very much, Moira. Thank you. So that was my interview with Dr. Summers. I hope you enjoyed that as thoroughly as I did. I found it deeply fascinating and I highly encourage you to follow her and look into the various different endeavors that she has because frankly, um, we could all get better at doing what is right for us and taking the right advice. So with that, as always, this has been Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever is your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.